Okay, so uh, I'm just going to kick things off uh, with a couple of comments and set a context, really, for what Kevin and Margaret are going to speak to about. And then I want to introduce Kevin and Margaret to you uh, in a little while. But I just want to say, first of all, that what we're doing today is very much part of the discipleship series that we've been doing as a church. If you've missed any of the talks, they're all online for you to catch up on. And I'd encourage you to listen to them. It's something that we're really pushing into this term, probably for the rest of the year, because we feel that God's got us on a bit of a mission to learn about the command that he gave to us to go and make disciples everywhere. And so if Jesus has told us to go and do that, we better understand what that means. So we're spending lots of time looking at that at the moment. But today we're really going to start looking at the cost of discipleship, which Paul kind of indicated last week when he spoke, because how many people who've been Christians for any amount of time know that life doesn't suddenly get really easy when you become a Christian, that you're not suddenly immune to all the problems in the world because, hey, God's on your side. But actually, it almost seems sometimes that things even get harder. Um, I was just reflecting on this. I've been reflecting on it for a few years, actually, but more particularly the last few days the first person if you like in the gospels that was really at risk of walking away from jesus was actually the the, john the baptist i mean john the baptist was the forerunner he was as jesus says the most significant prophet in of his day and yet he uh, was the one who announced Jesus' arrival. He he said, here he is, the Son of God. Look at him. He's going to take all the sins of the world around. He was, if you like, the number one disciple, <laughs> the number one follower, the first follower of Jesus. And yet, pretty soon uh, after Jesus' ministry began, we see that John the Baptist ends up getting himself into a bit of trouble with the king by challenging the king about an adulterous affair that he was having and as a result of that he gets thrown in prison and so it's almost like just a couple of chapters later you find that john the baptist is struggling with his faith he's struggling in his walk with god and he's asking some very big questions about jesus and if you've been a christian you'll know that there's trouble and it can disrupt an easy faith. In fact, you have to cling on with your fingernails, and then when your fingernails fall out, you have to keep clinging on, or you have to ask him to cling on to you. And uh, if you haven't been a Christian or been alive for long, maybe you've not realized that yet. But um, in John chapter 11, John Jesus says something really important, uh, a message to John the Baptist. He'd been talking with his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 11. And then he went on teaching and preaching in the different towns of Galilee. And they're seeing miracles and amazing things everywhere. And then John hears about all the stuff that's going on. And he's not involved because at this point, despite all he has said and all he has seen and all he has prophesied, he's not there. He's in prison. He's stuck in prison. And so he sends a message to Jesus And uh, through his own disciples say to him, are you really the one who was to come? Are you really the Christ? Are you really my savior? Are you really what I thought you were? He's disillusioned, you see, he's stuck in prison. Or is there somebody else that's going to come? And Jesus replies, sends this message back to John. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor, which is a bit of a code that John would have understood because actually Jesus is just reciting the prophecies of Isaiah and saying, John, you got it right, I am the one. But then he adds on this little line right at the end there, verse 6 of chapter 11. Blessed is the man who doesn't get offended because of me. Doesn't get offended. And do you know that is one of the biggest challenges in life? Is not to get offended, not to get disappointed with God when it doesn't go as you think it's going to go. And this is where the cost of discipleship hits the road. <laughs> when you begin to realize that despite what happens in life, he's still a good God, even when life sucks sometimes. And I wanted to tell Kevin and Margaret's story, actually, in doing a talk today. But I thought, well, why should I tell it? They can tell it so much better. But I want to commend Kevin and Margaret to you. Uh, We've known Kevin and Margaret for 30 years. I know, we don't look old enough. Uh, We've known them for 30 years. Actually, Alison's known them slightly longer. Uh, Kevin and Margaret actually introduced us before we got married. And then Kevin threatened me after I started going out with Alison and said, if you mess her around, we're going to get you, um, which he was very serious about. <laughs> and uh, I, I just want to uh, honor them, really, because in 30 years, you get to see everything in somebody's lives. We've, these guys have discipled us through years and I really feel that because of the time we had with Kevin and Margaret, we're doing what we're doing now. Uh, so I, I want you to honor them too. These guys are amazing. We, we actually live with them. Both of them have lived with Kevin and Margaret at different stages in our lives. We've seen their family. We've seen how they live. And we've also seen them 10 years ago go through the hardest thing any parent can go through. And although we weren't actually there every day with them, we journeyed with them and saw some stuff, some dark valleys that they went through, but saw them come out the other side, still loving Jesus, still wanting to serve Jesus, still wanting to preach the gospel. These guys are our heroes. And so as they come up, would you please welcome them? Come on up, Kevin and Margaret. Alison, do you want to just bring them up? So welcome. Right. Right, morning, everybody. Um, Thanks, Rob. Um, You made me cry as you were (laughs) saying what you said. Um, Please bear with me today. Um, It's quite a hard message. It's quite hard for me. And... um, I may be a little emotional, so if you can bear with me, I'd be really grateful. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, let's go. Um, Also, I have to read my notes because I know that I might not get everything said that I want to say. Okay. Anyway, firstly, I'd like to ask you a question. You don't have to answer it, but please think about it. It's not my question. I read it in one of my daily readings. And it really got me thinking. Is it possible that a man or woman can come to love God for himself alone so that there is a fundamental contentment in life regardless of circumstances? 
I'm just going to read that again. Is it possible that a man or woman can come to love God for himself alone so that there is a fundamental contentment in life regardless of circumstances? Okay, if you just think about that, okay? Well, I can honestly say that if I'd been asked that question a long time ago, my answer would be no, because bad things happen. And it's hard to come to terms with those bad things, especially if it happens to good people or it's unjust. Anyway, my story begins 35 years ago. I gave my life to God after almost a two-year battle with my husband Kevin over there. He'd been seriously ill in hospital and he'd become a Christian whilst there. But when he came out, his life's mission seemed to be to convert me. (laughs) He, He just kept on all the time. And I confess, I fought hard during those years as I thought, aren't we all Christians? We do live in a Christian country. And I was I. Anyway, to cut a long story short, in November 1980, I gave up the fight and I made the best decision of my life. I surrendered. And to this day, I am overwhelmed by God's personal and very particular interest in my life. The big things and the small, it doesn't matter to him. He just loves that we walk together. Sometimes I admit I fall, but he just picks me up. He loves me, he forgives me, and he lets me journey with him again. Speaking to me, listening to me, encouraging me, and sometimes disciplining me. Isn't it just amazing how God speaks through verses in the Bible? I love to highlight the verses that God speaks to me, and there are many that I've highlighted, but there's one in particular from Isaiah 43 that has really impacted me over and again over the years, and it's this one. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. I didn't realise then how much this verse would come to mean to me. In the 80s, life was full on. We were actively involved in church and we ran a youth group from our home and we had three lovely kids, Emma, Victoria and Matthew. And life, it was really good. However, as I said, bad things happen in life and the space of one week, my life dramatically changed when both my parents died just a week apart from each other. Then some time later... Both my brothers had serious head injuries within months of each other and eventually my eldest brother chose to leave this world, leaving his wife and young son. I cannot convey how these things affected me, such loss of my family. My mum was my best friend. Devastated doesn't even come near to how I felt, but God spoke to me again from Isaiah. In all my Christian experience, God has never said to me, don't worry, you won't pass through the waters or the rivers or the fire. He didn't even say, if you pass through the waters or if you go through the rivers or if you go through the fire. He said, when? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched nor will the flame burn you. 
He's saying that bad things do happen in life and that as Christians, we're not immune from it. For as Christians, we have something supernatural that enables us and strengthens and covers us in the highs and in the lows of life, in the valleys and in the mountain tops. And my story isn't just about the valleys. I've had some incredible mountaintop experiences too. My life has been rich and full, and yes, I am blessed. But life's journey's not over, and neither is my story. All the heartache that I'd been through, the grief and the loss of my family, I pretty much thought that I was well prepared for almost anything that life could throw at me. I thought that nothing could shake my world now. It had already been shaken. But I knew that my Father God was with me and he would never forsake me. He taught me that already. Anyway, the year 2006, it started well. We were great. We were proud grandparents as our first grandchild, Will, Emma and Richard's son, was just over one. Matt, our son, married Min, and Tori met Andrew, who she later married. It was great. We all went to great churches and life was really good. Then in April 2006, it seemed as though our life had begun to fall apart. Our beautiful daughter, Emma, 27 years old, full of life, loved life, busy at home and in church, was not well. Not just done well, but really not well. After many tests and investigations, she was told she had a terminal illness, cancer, with just three to four months to live. Once again, I can't convey what I felt at that moment, and I'm not going to try. This isn't the place, but as you can imagine, it was awful. My heart was crying out for my daughter. I couldn't take it in, hearing the consultant saying there was no hope. Looking at Emma, the darkness descended like a thick cloud, covering and turning that beautiful spring day into a black hole. Oh God, oh God, I cried. Then my oh God turned into but God. His word says that he is the glory and the lifter of our head and he lifted Emma's head and ours and he drew her out after him, deeper into him as we prayed and he spoke to us. And do you know what? We saw improvements in our health. Amazingly, people were praying from all over the world and Emma's relationship with Jesus went deeper and deeper. He gave us so many words, so many And this one in particular spoke deeply to her and to our family. It's from Psalm 27. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That verse seemed to take on new meanings as we journeyed through the valley of the shadow of death. At each stage, God spoke to Emma and to us individually through his word. As people prayed from all around the world, the doctors became amazed at her progress. Her health was improving, her life was improving. We were witnessing God at work in a very powerful and real way. She came off the sleeping pills and antidepressants that the doctors give people that are terminal to help them cope while they face the inevitable. 
We were digging deep into God with prayer and fasting. Worship became our life. We would gather around her home praying and praising God. She witnessed, worshipped, gave words of encouragement and led us as a family through this incredible journey. However, his thoughts are not our thoughts and neither his ways our ways, declares the Lord from Isaiah 55. As Christmas approached, we saw Emma's health change. Not her spirit or her faith, but her physical being. Emma went into hospital in February 2007. She was in pain, but she was amazing. She used the time well in hospital, sharing her faith with doctors, nurses, anyone who would listen. One day, a doctor came to see her to talk about medication, and he asked her if she had any questions. And she replied, yes, I have. Do you know Jesus? Because if you don't, you should. He is amazing. The doctor's eyes filled with tears. He explained he'd walked away from his faith because of the suffering he'd seen in his work. He was the palliative care consultant on the teenage cancer ward. Another time, as we were gathered round a bed, she stopped us praying and said, stop praying for me. I know Jesus. Pray for those teenagers out there on the ward. So that's what we did. She was incredible. She loved people. She loved her family. She loved her young son. She prayed. She laughed. She cried. She worshipped, witnessed and devoured God's word. She said to her sister one day, Tori, live life. Love life. But love God even more. Emma chose life. She chose life with Jesus and she lived a life with fervency that was infectious. And that scripture, she would have despaired if she had not seen the goodness of God in the land of the living. She waited for her Lord. In March 2007, Emma left us. Her life had touched so many people. And many had got baptised and gave their lives to Christ, including her best friend who was backslidden. Years ago, I remember talking to Emma about her friend, saying how she'd make a fantastic Christian. And uh, Emma said, Mum, it would take something really big to get her to become a Christian. I didn't realise then that there's something big would be Emma. We handle grief in many ways. A whole range of emotions take over. Anger, despair, resentment, denial, apathy, to name but a few. But I thought nothing could compare with the grief I'd already been through in life. But this was something else. God, you've got this the wrong way round. You've made a big mistake. You've got it wrong. The battle in me seemed endless as the roller coaster of emotions consumed me, the depths of which is inappropriate for me to share. But let me tell you, it was deep. But God, but God, again his word. Margaret, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, You will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. 
I tried to hang in there, but this still consumed me. But God the Father, he knew my pain. He'd sent his son to die for us and Emma. He gently reminded me of this continually. He knows how it feels to watch his child suffer in agony and pain. And yet he willingly gave him for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 Through the months and years that followed, I struggled to make sense of life. I'd seen my daughter find such hope and strength and felt ashamed that I couldn't face life seemingly at all. They say it takes about two years. If anyone can actually put a time scale on grief before you start seeing the way ahead. Well, it wasn't for me. When, when, for me, God hit me one day like a... God hit me one day like a thunderbolt. We were at a leaders conference and in the afternoon some time was given for ministry and reluctantly I received ministry and I mean reluctantly from the leader's wife and one of the team. All I can say is that God met me in a way that bowled me over. I was released from the guilt. Yes, I felt guilty. From my anger. Boy, was I angry with God. And from a whole load of other things that I was holding on to. He forgave me. And he released the chains that had been holding me down. He flooded me with new revelation and gave me scriptures and songs. He brought colour back into my life. I've been living in a colourless time warp. Unable to lift my head, consumed with grief and shame and anger, and he forgave me. Thank you, God. You are so good. I still miss Emma. I always will. But I look back on her life and I thank God that she lived for the life that she lived and her example. For her son, Will, a beautiful reminder of her. I still cry and it still hits me hard because grief is not confined to a two-year get over it and move on time scale. But I can now see more clearly and see the bigger picture. I, I know that I have grown spiritually through these hard and difficult life experiences. Two years after Emma, I was diagnosed with breast cancer on a routine mammogram. I thank God it was caught in time and after treatment I've been cancer free for eight years now. But then in 2010 our younger daughter who has lupus suddenly developed psychotic symptoms. We thought she was having a breakdown but after many tests and brain scans her rheumatologist diagnosed cerebral lupus and she was very ill. She couldn't function normally. She was in hospital having chemotherapy for six months. However, our God is faithful and after intensive prayer, and that's another story which I don't have time to tell, she is well. Her five-year-old son is evidence of the miracle that took place then. They couldn't have children. The doctors had told them that. But God said they could. 
I thank God for all that he's given to me. I thank him for my life. It wasn't how I planned it. I thank him for it, though, for his blessings, for I am blessed with my family, our three children and three grandchildren. I thank God for his timing. I thank him for his faithfulness to me, for his strength that enables me to carry on through the difficulties, through the sufferings, through the valley of the shadow of death. And of course, I don't want to forget that he gives me the ability to enjoy his blessings too, even in the midst of adversity. Romans 8:17 says, And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Remember the question I asked earlier. Is it possible that a man or woman can come to love God for himself alone so that there is a fundamental contentment in life regardless of circumstances? Well, I can honestly say yes, I know it's possible. Through our surrender to his grace in faith. Though I can't tell you enough how important prayer, worship and the word of God has been to us on this journey. I'm just going to hand over to Kevin now. Okay, that was uh, that was brave and um, quite a bit of detail, but nowhere near the amount that really happened. Um, I'm just going to give you the a little summary of some of the things you said and my perspective, if that's okay, just very briefly. Um, and first of all, I want to share kind of in bulk the, the scriptures that God used during this time for us and still is using. They become some, some of these scriptures become signature scriptures for us, for life. We keep coming back to them over and over again. Not that there's a whole Bible that we can't get to know, but these scriptures, particularly John chapter, in John chapter 15, he says Jesus chose us um, to bear fruit, which we believe is to be the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and righteousness. Fruit that remains throughout. Fruit that stays there despite the circumstances, despite the difficulties. But it's fruit that remains. I'd never seen quite that before, quite it like that before. I'd never seen it quite like that before. Fruit that remains. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, even through difficulties and circumstances. When we remain surrendered to God, the fruit of the Spirit keeps coming. Then in Isaiah 42, verse 3, I'm reminded that a battered reed, a bruised, a broken reed, God will not break. A smoldering light lamp or dimly dimly lit light, he chooses not to extinguish. And he goes on to faithfully bring justice, if justice is needed. In Revelation... Chapter 12, 11, which has become really something that I constantly come back to regularly. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, him the enemy, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love, contain, protect, isolate their lives to the death. We can protect our lives. 
we can put so many insurance policies that are not necessarily insured. And, and in some ways, I'm not, I'm not speaking against being prudent and, and planning. But if we rely on that stuff, we, we, miss, we miss what God has for us. So they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's what God did. And the word of their testimony, that's what we do. There's a partnership there. It's incredible, isn't it? There is a partnership between what God does and what we say that brings results. Because we overcome. There's a constancy, a a constancy of the declaration of faith in God throughout however thin times are. Because it's in the spirit realm. Because it's something that's going on in the supernatural realm. It's not just down to us. It's down to what God has done by the blood of the Lamb and what we share openly. In Luke, sorry, in in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. Or it actually literally says, we more than conquer. We don't just conquer. We do more than conquer. We go on and become productive and fruitful. This is the miracle of suffering. Look at Jesus' suffering. He died on the cross. And what was the result? He sent the Holy Spirit and transformed the planet. It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to them all, he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not a scripture we hear very often. It's not a scripture we want to bring, uh, talking about taking up your cross daily, but it's still there. There is a cross to pick up. There are joys. There are, I'm, I'm not one of these depressive type people. I'm quite an extrovert. I like, love to be out there and bouncing. But this is the basis. This is the, the, all that Margaret has said right the way, running right the way through has been the cross. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We we have to, as Margaret just said, share in the sufferings of Christ. We share in the cross. We share in the victory. We share, we embrace the cross. We embrace the victory. We receive it. It's a tremendous miracle. I had to come to the conclusion, or I did come to the conclusion, after the episode of Emma, what was worse? Suffering or watching someone suffer? I don't know. But God the Father watched his son Jesus suffer. So much so he put the lights out so the people around could not. You're not watching this. You're not looking at this. My son is taking on your sin. And you're not looking at it. Because it's going to mar him beyond recognition. To look away. So Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only for a moment. It was an incredible. When we get into this, it's incredible. And there were times when I felt that God had looked away. There are times when we... Oh yeah, you can put a face on, you can put a a thing on, you know, you can persona. But you can't help it. You think God's looked away. 
but he hasn't. He's not only not looked away, he's protecting you. He was protecting us. He didn't feel like it. But in retrospect, I know he was. Where do I begin? My version from hearing the news to watching her slip away into eternity. This is Emma. And the 12-month journey in between those moments was... They were in the full spectrum of emotions. Deep, I mean deep, deep anguish. A depth which I could never have thought possible. This was deep calling unto deep. There's a, there's a verse somewhere in the Old Testament that talks about deep calling to deep. And sometimes we gloss over those things. It doesn't fit with our modern lifestyle. We don't want to go deep because it hurts. But deep, you think you've gone deep, as Mar- Margaret just, in her story, she talked about going something that went deep, and then it went deeper. And deep seems to call to deep, but God's there. I was reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And for those of you who know your Bible, I'm sorry for those who don't, I haven't got time to go through it, but they, for, through, through their disobedience to the king and their obedience to God, they would chose not to bow down to another God, to bow down to a statue. So the king had them thrown into a furnace, and they turned the furnace up seven times more than it would normally be turned up. And they threw them in to the fire for all to see, for disobedience to the king. And they, one of them cried out, Can you see inside there? There's four people. We threw three in. There's four in. And we know that was Jesus ministering. And they came out of that fire completely unsinged. They had a phenomenal experience. It reminded me of being in the fire and coming out unsinged. I remember Emma, uh, I remember the room when Emma t- herself told us the news. It was dark. It just seemed like a dark room now. And uh, she herself told us the news, cancer, and the subsequent prognosis for months. I'll just whip through some things Margaret may have mentioned, but this is my, my take. So much life to live, so much plan, such a short space of time to do it in. Devastation, desperation, darkness and numbness took us into prayer at depths, I didn't even know it existed. Opened up spiritual realms I had only ever talked about, never experienced, or thought I might have done. Extreme circumstances need extreme actions. About 250 people turned up to pray for her at a spontaneous prayer meeting called by many in the church on the night that we released that news. Such imminence brought people out at that night, uh, on the night that we broke the news. Many words of healing, encouragement, and the like came thick and fast. There was so much going on. Within a few weeks, there was improvement. The treatment prescribed was palliative. Medics were skeptical. Emma became hopeful. So this is... Again, there's this stretch of spectrum of emotion and feeling that went from that to that. A 
we were living, we, we started to live in a world of prayer and intercessions and prophetic words and worship everywhere. Everywhere we went, everything we did was spiritually serious, charged atmosphere. Emma was getting better. Praise God. And some months passed by. There was loads of activity, worldwide interest, and so much encouragement. People coming to faith or asking about this God that Emma was so richly testifying about. Emma improved massively, massively. And a consultant suggested chemo. Now as the cancer had really shrunk and the bloods looked good and the pain was minimal. A treatment suggested uh, had to be but had to be privately funded. And on inspection, it didn't seem to be the right thing for her. But it didn't stop someone in the church we were in, which was in Zion Christian Centre in Hales Owen. It didn't stop someone ringing us one Sunday uh, afternoon who discovered this was the case and offered us £100,000 for her to have this treatment. He said, if it costs a little bit more, because it always comes to more than people say, he said, it's there. Just, see, this story is not just about me and Margaret and Emma even. It's about the people of God. It's about an atmosphere and a time and a season where so much is going on. You wonder whether, I don't know if I could cope with that all the time. But you wonder whether, what is the church when it's working right, Bill Hybels used to say, when the church is working right, what else is there like it on the planet? Uh, There isn't. £100,000, man, that's just... He said, we've got it in the bank and God's challenged us to give it to you. What was happening there was God was challenging him about his money. Emma didn't take the money. She, She didn't feel it was right. But God was challenging him about his money in the bank. Incredible, isn't it? The discipleship spin-offs in all this are incredible. That's why it's important for churches to go through stuff together and believe him. Even when the outcome isn't what we thought. You see, sometimes it's not about the ultimate outcome. It's about God at work. Although I didn't really want to be in this club. Although it was a very highly charged atmosphere of faith and the like, there was still what felt like often a cloud over us. It, It sort of crept in from time to time. And it was often hard to shake it off. It wasn't that we were hiding or denial. I don't know, maybe we were. Maybe we can afford ourselves a little bit of denial, a little bit of doubt. Well, God didn't mind. We definitely experienced both ends of the spectrum of emotions. This is, there is hardly a book that I hadn't read about healing. I just devoured books, all the classics. All about healing. I didn't try the Smith Wigglesworth's methods, but I'd have got in some serious trouble for that. Twelve months where Emma and her husband, Richard, they climbed Alvellan. They did all sorts of stuff that they hadn't done before. Um, Physically, she seemed to be doing really, really well, as, as Margaret mentioned. They climbed a mountain. They'd been all sorts of places and... She insisted on us all going to renewal in, in Solihull every Tuesday evening where we all received so much hope just through being in his presence. The importance, Margaret said it earlier, there's so much importance in the word of God and in worship, authentic opportunities to just soak God up because he's there wanting to fill us, encourage us, 
with something that is eternal. There is no limit to how much God can comfort us, except that we put on him. But he still seems to do more than we let him. Does that make sense? He still seems to do more than we let him. Dave Carr became good friends with Emma. There was something about God around her, he would say. I just mentioned that because Emma had a particular relationship there that seemed to lift her and bless her. Over 400 people attended a funeral in in um, in Hales Owen. The police decided not to uh, not to allow anyone to get booked for parking because parking was really bad. And it's incredible, isn't it? There was a big wedding take a big wedding, yeah, a big wedding taking place, a wedding as well as a funeral. Uh, perhaps that perhaps how, that's how God saw it as a wedding, not a funeral. Um, yeah I just jumbled something up here her room was so full of the presence of God when she was in hospital that it seemed hard to believe that the outcome was to be anything other than a miraculous healing the cloud was still there worship, nurses, doctors would recognise and comment upon the atmosphere and the peace in her room big big names came to pray for her actually Rob (laughs) um she would then minister to them. Anyone who went to minister to her, to pray for her, ended up being ministered to. I'm sure many of us have been in that situation where people who are dying, who love God, minister to you. It's incredible. Incredible extravagance of the Spirit of God. She would challenge doctors, and Margaret mentioned it, and nurses about their spiritual state. And One doctor wept as he confessed to rejecting God. That's okay, she said to him. Just tell him you're sorry and he'll forgive you. (laughs) Audacity. I sensed a departure. When she died, I just sensed, when she came with an immense sense of relief and devastation at the same time. Can you get your head around that? But it did. The agony then of of telling people, can you believe that came into my head? How am I going to tell people that she's not been healed? I remember Rob bringing me with a picture. It was so powerful that it wasn't easy for him to say so because you, 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 were, you had a picture of that she wasn't going to make it. It's true. And you have to have the courage to do that because it, it actually comforted me. You'd think I'd just want to hear about the healings or that she would be resurrected. But he's... He said, I don't know if I I got this right, that in the battle it's the young that die. But it doesn't mean you don't win the battle. Man, that just spoke so much to me that morning when you rang me up and said that. Even when there's loss, the battle is still won. It's amazing. I just want to make a couple of comments. Did Jesus go to the cross to provide us with a tidy, well-intended religion that stacks up with human desires and opinions about what is good for us and what isn't? Did he do it as an option to safeguard and keep our lives healthy and safe? Well, 
You could argue a little bit. We spend lots of money and time planning safety. But it's vulnerability that attracts God to us. As it is in our weakness, he is made strong. Make no mistake. Just because you, you can stand there in emotional strength doesn't attract God to you. Because he can't do anything with you. It's when we're weak, he's made strong in us. Was this what was in the heart of God when Christ cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And is it, it is finished. Is it really that he declared that he completed the task on time, met the deadline and delivered us with an opportunity to go, go do church? Or is it really much more gritty and robust than that? Is it so much more earthy? Is it so much more effective for us that it gets to the deepest, deepest, deepest of levels of our anguish? Or was it so that we could be on fire and not get burned? Or in the flood... That it doesn't overwhelm us. Is it that we could in Christ be more than conquerors? More than overcomers? Is it that we can experience a sample of heaven on earth? Is it that we can can engage in, in God in a union of love and grace beyond anything we could ever manufacture as humans? With almighty God. And live in the kingdom with reactions to what happens in life, supernaturally overcoming, defeating what was meant to crush us, and instead we live. In this in our story, we've seen what God has been doing, what God did in individuals and in churches, because this some of these things affect churches. Because we take news into a church of people who care and pray. And start seeking God. We saw what we saw. What God was doing in individual lives. In church life. Compassion. Priorities changed for many of us. Not just us. It was people around us. Their priorities were changing. Plans and goals were put aside. Certain meetings were put aside. Because it seemed pointless. And meaningless in the light of what was going on. Certain things became strangely unimportant. Seemed much more, it seemed much more about living in the spirit. Daily, hourly, minute by minute. More about the presence of God. More about walking with him. Not missing anything he might say to us. A new urgency. A new imminence. A high percentage of this is still with me. It didn't go away. And it changed me for the rest of my life. As I said, Margaret and I have talked about this. We are completely different people. And if we embrace what God does, however horrible, however dark and horrible it is, and don't say it's because God has punished me, it's because it just happened. But God is there for us. And takes us to new levels of depth, of height, of width, and of love. And if you know the book of Ephesians, you'll recognize where that comes from. To know the love, the height, the depth, and the width, and to know the love of Christ. He gives us 
infinitely more, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. How much more convinced do we need to be? I don't want to be in this club, man. I did not want to be, and I don't want to be in the suffering club. To you? But we can embrace God. And he will take us through the water, just like Israel went through the water, went through, they had to step into the sea. It opened up in front of them and they walked on dry land. Dry land. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego didn't get burned. There are many more stories. How many do we need? I'm going to bring it to an end there. That's my take and uh, all I can say to you is that it's vulnerability. I came to the conclusion if we're vulnerable people in the right way, an appropriate way, if we're vulnerable people, we're like magnets to God. <laughs> he wants to come and show us because he wants us to work in his kingdom, for his kingdom, and to reach other people. And without that compassion, without that suffering, sometimes compassion is kind of a little bit plastic. As, as, as hard as we might try, we come across as, sorry if you're a counsellor, but how did that make you feel? It can be a little bit... But suffering will bring, bring you into something that's very genuine. Can we just have Kevin and Margaret up again? I, I just want to stand and honour them. I know they don't want me to do that, but it's, an only, it's the only way we can show appreciation and honour. Um, I hope you love them as much as I do now after hearing their story. Let's just honour them. Thank you.